And together, as the deacons continue to collect the remaining offering, and you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as we read God's Word together, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find this morning's text on page 966 in a chairback Bible that should be nearby. It is a special day as we come together this morning to praise and exalt Jesus Christ and also ordain Ben Dunson to the gospel ministry. And as such, we are taking a break. We're hitting the pause button on our ongoing series through the book of Genesis. Lord willing, we'll pick up the story of Genesis at the first of the new year in chapter 15. And as Ben and I were speaking about this service and a sermon text appropriate to such a service as today about 10 days ago, he had mentioned 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 as an undervalued text on gospel preaching. And I was able to encourage him by saying, hey, in our preaching class at the seminary this semester, we focused quite a bit on 2 Corinthians 5.20, but he is surely right on many levels that it tends to be underrated, perhaps even altogether neglected by preachers and even church members, what we find out about gospel preaching according to this passage. And so it's a special text for a special service, chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. So those two verses will be our text this morning. Let me read them for us and then pray for our time And we will begin. So hear now as God speaks to you the gospel of Christ through his word. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we do bow before you now, thanking you that you are a God of great gifts. You are a God of mercy and kindness, unending compassion, faithfulness to your covenant. We thank you that you speak to us your living and active word, the word of the covenant that we might know you, that we might hear the gospel of reconciliation. Help us to hear it this morning as you indeed speak to us, to hear earnestly and faithfully for me to preach as you say I must with clarity and courage. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was in 1809 that the Presbytery of Philadelphia Overture General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church asking the assembly to create a plan for a denominational seminary. For roughly two years, they went back and forth on the plans for that seminary until they had the plan in place of what would become Princeton Theological Seminary, this bastion of Presbyterian theology and piety in the 19th century. And once they had the place settled, uh, they wanted to figure out, well, who's the first professor going to be? And so then in a near unanimous vote, which was said to have come with much tears and many prayers, the assembly called a 40-year-old well-known pastor from Philadelphia named Archibald Alexander 
to be the first faculty member of Princeton Seminary. The problem was, Alexander didn't want the position. And so he sought counsel. He sought the encouragement of even those in his church. And eventually he realized and settled on the conviction that the assembly's call was nothing less than God's divine call upon his life, and therefore he must go to Princeton Theological Seminary. And so not long after that, he was giving something of a farewell address to his congregation encouraging them, comforting them for their kind of unknown future that was waiting them. And along the way, he gave more reasons as to why he was going to leave the pastoral ministry and take up the role of a professor, an instructor of the next generation of ministers. And he said this to his church, to train up young men for the ministry has always been considered of higher importance to the church of Christ than to preach the gospel to a particular flock already gathered into the fold. To train gospel ministers is of greater importance than preaching the gospel to a flock already gathered. And everyone agrees on that, is what Alexander said. Now, you might not agree with it. I'm not so sure I agree with it. But I agree with the heart behind it and endorse what he is saying in that, to train ministers of the gospel, to instruct preachers of Jesus Christ is one of the highest callings there is on earth. That's kind of the thesis statement, if you will, for where we're going this morning. I want you to consider it and maybe even weigh it in your mind, meditate on it briefly for a second. Is that true? To train gospel ministers is one of the highest callings there is on earth. It is true only if Preaching the gospel is one of the highest callings there is on earth. It's true if declaring the good news of Jesus Christ is one of the most eternally significant things any person can do. And so therefore, what we're going to see in our text today is Paul answer those questions and even answer that thesis statement in the affirmative and say, yes, it is indeed true if we understand rightly what preaching is according to God's word. So this morning isn't just an occasion that we have an opportunity to observe God's grace towards us as we ordain a man to gospel ministry. It's also for all of us, specifically for members here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, to think about something of a refresher course on the place of preaching in a local congregation. Our heritage says that it's ordinarily through the preaching of Jesus Christ that sinners are saved that the saints are sanctified. It's the preaching of Christ that is the chariot that brings the Savior down from heaven to earth. It's the preaching of Christ that is the spiritual sword that assaults hell's gates and storms Satan's strongholds. It's the preaching of Christ that the Son of Righteousness dawns upon the earth to harden hard hearts and melt icy souls. It's through the preaching of Christ that the Spirit rebukes and reproves, corrects and convicts, edifies and enlivens. And I wonder if you agree all of that is true. Is preaching really that significant? Students, think for a second about your view of preaching. Is what you hear on a Lord's Day Sunday morning that important? Or is it just this monotonous monologue that you're made to sit through by your parents. 
What I want you to see this morning is what Paul is going to tell us students is from this text is soon enough, some of you quite sooner than later, you're going to move away from your parents' house. You're going to make many decisions that have a a life-changing effect. Where you live, what school you go to, relationships you will form. But our text is telling you that the most important decision you can make when you strike out as an independent person is the preaching you listen to on a Lord's Day Sunday morning. It is that significant. And kids, I wonder what you think about preaching. Surely, preaching that has words and phrases and thoughts that you necessarily can't always follow. And parents, I wonder if you are impressing upon your children the importance of of preaching through your teaching, through your example to your children, recognizing that apart from preaching, it is almost impossible to live the Christian life with the Spirit's help. And if all of that causes you to have this concerned mindset of it's just a self-serving interest of the preacher to say it's that significant. Well, we want to listen to Paul this morning what he says about preaching the ordinary ministry of ordinary ministers according to our text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you wanted to summarize what he's going to say, it's essentially this truth. Christ speaks his word of reconciliation through preaching. Christ speaks His word of reconciliation through preaching. I was listening to a song recently, one of these worship praise anthems of the CCM charts that was longing to hear God speak. And you just cry out, don't you? Read the Bible! (laughs) He shouts from the Scriptures. Listen to your preacher. He is God's herald. He is God's word to you, and we want to see that this morning by noticing, first of all, the preacher's appointment, secondly, the preacher's appeal, thirdly, the preacher's announcement. So the appointment, first of all, notice how verse 20 begins, therefore, you probably don't need to be an expert student in Scripture to recognize that Paul's probably getting ready to say something in writing that he's building on from something he has just written. But in this case, in this text, it's really not that simple that you just look to the verse before to understand what Paul is arguing here in verse 20. Because just skip your eyes up a few verses to verse 17. There he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He's stretching quite a long ways back into his discourse as he's building to this concluding, culminating thought here at the end of chapter 5. And in a real sense, he's going back all the way to chapter 3. You notice verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, having this ministry. By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So when we jump in immediately like we're doing this morning into verse 20 of chapter 5, it's like jumping into a conversation in the church hallway that's been going on for quite a few minutes and you realize, well, you've missed out a lot of the content from where you are as they're talking about this. And it's the same thing here. So you need to know something of the background to what Paul's even doing in the letter as a whole. You know, as best we can tell, this letter was written about a year after 1 Corinthians. 
If you read through the letter in one sitting, you could do this later on this afternoon or evening. It would be a great Lord's Day activity. Uh, What you would notice is that clearly what Paul is after in this letter is something of an apologetic for his apostolic ministry. He's defending his work among the Corinthians and his ongoing ministry among the Corinthians because they are tempted to reject his ministry in favor of what he terms the super apostles, these popular preachers, entertaining heralds, occupying the attention there at Corinth. And so what he's doing is, no, you have to understand, church at Corinth, who I am. I am a minister of the new covenant. That's what he's just said at the end of verse 18 and 19 of chapter 5. Not just have I been given the ministry of the new covenant, Paul says, I've been entrusted with the message of the new covenant. Therefore, notice how verse 20 continues, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's his appointment. And the word ambassador is one from which we get our English word of elder. It was normal in the ancient context that an ambassador, this representative of a higher ruler, was going to be someone of age because it was presumed, of course, therefore, there'd be wisdom, there'd be discernment to execute the judgments, to deliver the announcements to a particular people. And an ambassador in the ancient culture was revered. To disregard the ambassador, to disrespect the ambassador, was to disregard and disrespect the ruler who sent him because he came as a representative of that authority. So you can't help but wonder, as the church in Corinth tempted to reject, disregard, disrespect, Paul's ministry hears, we are ambassadors of Christ. If there isn't this disquieting of their soul, maybe we shouldn't disregard, disrespect this one who's been sent to us by God, one who's been sent to us for Christ. And of course, you'll notice verse 20 is uniquely talking about Paul's ministry. Are we right then to apply it to ordinary gospel preachers today? I don't want to deal too long with this as much as just saying, notice it says, we are ambassadors, not just I am an ambassador. We know he's writing this letter in conjunction with an ordinary minister named Timothy. So this is an ongoing reality to God's heralds, to Christ's preachers, that they are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That is their appointment Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Paul says, notice how the verse continues, God making his appeal through us. Oh, there's this scene, isn't there, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. You'll find it in the Gospels, the Jesus appearing on the Mount of Transfiguration, this glorified setting before three disciples. And you remember that Peter kind of speaks out of turn as Peter is wont to do, and then the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In in a genuine, sanctified sense, God is saying something similar through this text to ordinary Christians throughout the ages about preachers who are ambassadors for Christ. This is my beloved servant. Listen to him. That's his appointment. Notice the preacher's appeal. God makes his appeal through us. I wonder what books you remember from high school literature class. If you can think back that long, some of you students are in high school literature classes right now. The only books I remember with fond memory, at least, are quite few. High up on the list from my time in English lit class was Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. If you don't know anything about the story, it 
focuses on two main characters, at least. Atticus Finch is this defense lawyer, and he's made to defend this African-American brother named Tom Robinson, who's been wrongly accused of a crime he didn't commit. And the story is leading, isn't it, of course, this climactic courtroom scene to this climactic closing argument where Finch stands before the jury and makes this eloquent, this, this moving appeal that they hear the evidence, they heed the evidence, and let this man go for his life. And of course, they do convict him, and he's eventually shot and killed as he's escaping from prison. They didn't heed the appeal. Well, if you can get your mind around that kind of emotional atmosphere of an appeal, you have an idea of what Paul's saying here when he says God makes his appeal through us. Because this word appeal was one that was used in a a legal setting in the ancient world, but it had this personal connotation as well. It was something like an upfront and personal legal appeal to an individual. Hear and heed the truth. And what we need to know then is we've got to think carefully about who preachers are because the text tells us in a divine sense they are God's mouthpieces. Do you want to listen to God? Hear faithful preaching. Listen to true preaching, and you'll hear the real Word of God is exactly what Paul is saying right here. It was in 1840 that Robert Murray McShane was preaching an ordination sermon about, or one of his close friends at least, not his best friend, but a close friend named Patrick Miller. He was just newly appointed the pastor and preacher of Wallacetown there in Scotland, McShane took for his text a well-known passage from 2 Timothy chapter 4 for that ordination sermon. And when he got to the end of the, the second point in that sermon, he, he said, I need to focus on, quote, a fault in the preaching of our beloved Scotland. So consider that for a second. If you were to say, this is a fault of our preaching in beloved America, or maybe put it more close to home for us, consider this fault of preaching in our beloved North Texas Presbytery. You know, what would you say it is? Well, this is what McShane said. Most ministers are accustomed to set Christ before the people. They lay down the gospel clearly and beautifully, but they do not urge men to enter in. Now God says, exhort, beseech men, persuade men, not only point to the open door, but compel them to come in. Oh, that we would be more merciful to souls, that we would lay hands on men and draw them into the Lord. It's one thing to set Christ before the people. It's another thing entirely, he says, to beseech them to come in, walk through that narrow gate, to implore them which is what Paul says we must do, doesn't he, at the end of verse 20? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You can circle and underline this, this verb implore. It, it kind of gets used in all different settings and connotations in the New Testament. It can mean beg, beseech, entreat, plead. It's this idea of this earnest, passionate pleading call 
It's often used most acutely throughout the New Testament of this kind of passionate prayer, this tear-filled, knee-scuffed, passionate prayer, longing for God to answer, longing to meet God. And even in 2 Corinthians, the next times it's used, if you flip over to chapter 8, verse 4, talk is, uh, Paul is speaking about the Macedonians begging us earnestly. Paul says, we need preaching of Christ that authoritatively begs. So I wonder then, what do you come to preaching hoping to hear? I do hope you come to hear Jesus Christ preached. Maybe more to our text at this point is, how do you hope to hear Jesus Christ preached? I have a genuine fear that many people today want to hear Christ primarily and almost exclusively through the means of explanation. And that's okay to have Christ explained to you. But if preaching is only explanation, it's not preaching. It's teaching. So the New Testament does make a distinction between the two. Preaching must exhort. Preaching Christ must beseech. Declaring Christ must plead. It has to have this tone when there's the true gospel in the sermon going out to the people of turn to Christ. Lean on Christ, rest on Christ, come to Christ, close with Christ. This earnest, pleading, authoritative, begging, earnestly calling, come to Christ. Is that the kind of preaching you hope to hear? It's the kind of preaching we need to hear. So those of you in here this morning who are seminary students, we have quite a few in here today, studying for the gospel ministry. Some of you have finished your seminary students or seminary studies, and you're waiting for a call to the ministry, uh, make sure you have a a right understanding uh, of exhortation in preaching. That people need explanation of the truth, but they need exhortation into the truth as well. You have to have this certainty, you have to have this urgency, you have to have this confidence that comes from your identity as Christ's ambassador. God, through you, making His appeal to sinful people. You'll see the appeal, don't you notice, at the end of verse 20. Be reconciled to God. I have this application on my computer that's something like a turbocharged grammar checker. Because I need it. And it flags all kinds of problems. But what annoys it the most is sentences written in the passive voice. So earlier this week, working on the sermon, copying and pasting in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, put it into the document and watch the application go bonkers. Because <laughs> students, you notice, be reconciled to God is passive. And that is gospel significant. This is not something you can do. The action must be done to you. You can't reconcile yourself to God based on your own works, your own wisdom, your own strength, your own power, your own righteousness. It must be done to you, is what Paul is saying. It must be done to you, which leads from the appeal to the announcement, answering the question of how it is that it can be done to sinful people like you and me. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible. Some of them, don't you know, are like coming to a burning bush of gospel truths. You know, they just shine with this Shekinah-like glory, almost blinding in its truth-filled brilliance. 
Christian churches throughout the ages have long held 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is one of those verses. There's still time left at the end of 2019 to memorize the truth of God's word. This would be a great verse to tattoo upon your heart through meditation in the closing weeks. A text that tells us how it is that sinful people can be reconciled to God. That's the appeal. That's the imploring reality. Be reconciled to God. Now, reconciliation, of course, isn't it true that in our time is often used of relational realities? We speak of a marriage being reconciled, friends being reconciled, a relationship made right, and that's not untrue. The word originally spoke about the exchange of coins, telling us that something has to be exchanged in order for genuine reconciliation to occur. And you'll notice what we get in verse 21 is the gospel of the great exchange. Because notice, first of all, what Christ was made to be for us. For our sake, he made him, that's God made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Children, you might have made it all the way through the kids' catechism, which asked the question of, did Jesus ever sin? The answer is no. He was holy, blameless, and undefiled. Never had a sinful thought never spoke a sinful word, never did an evil deed. Yet you and I, born into sin by children, by nature children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and failings, you and I, born into a different spiritual situation by which we can rightly say we have a PhD in iniquity. We know sin that well. Are that expert in what it means to disobey God's law? And this text tells us that the Father was pleased to put all of it on His Son to save and reconcile sinful people like you and me. And you might know that the Old Testament had this rich picture and illustration of reconciliation that was an annual thing in the life of Israel. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take a goat, the spotless goat. Subsequently, it came to be known, wasn't it, uh, the scapegoat. More originally in Hebrew, the live goat. And what the high priest would do is that he would symbolically lay his hands on the goat's head, transferring the sin of God's people to that goat. And where did that goat go? Outside of the camp, away from God's presence, into the wilderness of death, showing that someone must take it all away, sinfulness for spotlessness. And we know the same thing happened with Jesus Christ when he was crucified at the hill called Calvary, the spotless Lamb of God became your sin, your lust, your division, your anger, your hatred, your grumbling, your complaining, your unwillingness to follow, your fear. He became sin for you. That's what Christ was made to be for you. So that, you see how the verse ends. We need to see what we are made to be in Christ. So that, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's the gospel of a great exchange, isn't it? Your unworthiness for His worthiness. Your disobedience for His obedience. Your heinousness for His holiness. Your rags for His righteousness. 
How is it that an unholy people, that an unholy person can be made right, restored to fellowship with a holy God? God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. And if you ever wanted to know what that kind of apostolic appeal, that kind of passionate pleading might look like in Paul's ministry, you don't need to wonder. Just skip a couple verses ahead or read a couple verses ahead, right? Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6, working together with him, then we appeal to you, church at Corinth, professing believers, members of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Working then from this text in Isaiah, he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's preaching that pleads Christ speaking his word of reconciliation through his preachers. Be reconciled to God. Are you reconciled to the Father today? It was cold enough earlier this week when I was out running with the children in the afternoon that we passed by a house that clearly was burning, a, a wood-burning fire in the fireplace. You know, the, the smell that was wafting out of the chimney and seasoning the trail was very much a, a wood-burning fire. And as these things come, sometimes happen, don't you know, you just get the smell and suddenly it like sends you back into your personal history. And I had these vivid memories of times going up to my maternal grandparents' house in Michigan during the Christmas season, and Grandpa Koontzman always in and out of the house to bring a log to put on the fire, arrange it just right, grabbing the poker and poking and prodding and stoking to get that flame full. What our text is telling us is that we need preachers who are aflame for Jesus Christ. Verse 14 would tell us, lit with love for Jesus Christ. Now we know that professors and seminaries can't put the fire in that fireplace. Only the Spirit can do that. But what we're saying on this unique day is that professors and seminaries must poke and prod at that fire, working with the Spirit's help to fan into flame, preaching that genuinely pleads and makes appeals on behalf of Jesus Christ. Training gospel preachers is one of the most significant works this side of heaven is the thesis statement. In case you don't think it's true, let me bring out two more things here at the end as we begin to close from our text to try to help you understand why it is biblically appropriate to say that. Training ministers of the gospel is one of the highest callings on earth, number one, because of the place of God's voice in preaching. Because of the place of God's voice in preaching. Does not Paul say God makes his appeal through us? We implore on Christ's behalf. God's voice is present in the true faithful preaching of his word. And this has long been a hallmark of our Reformed heritage. For example, the Second Helvetic Confession says, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. Or can't you hear the echoes of 2 Corinthians 5.20 and the 15.37 Genevan Confession? As we receive the true ministers of the word of God as messengers and ambassadors of God, it is necessary to listen to them as to God himself. Preachers are God's mouthpieces 
That's their appointment. That's their identity as insofar as they are faithful to God's word. So therefore, what this means for some of you in here today that you need to have an appropriate perspective on preachers, not just the preaching. Some of you may need to take the preacher down a bit from the pedestal that you've put him on. He's a messenger, not a messiah. A servant, not a savior. An ambassador of Christ, simply delivering Christ's word of reconciliation to a world that needs it. But I suppose it's certainly true for someone in the room today that you need to raise your estimation of the preacher. You spend most of your time hearing Christ preach just ripping the preacher apart in your own heart and mind. If you understand this text rightly, you've ripped apart Jesus Christ who's speaking to you. And that's a fearful thing to do. So you want to know there, there's a reason that we say training preachers is of utmost significance because of the place of God's voice in preaching. Secondly and finally, because of the passion required of God's servant in preaching. I mean, these are the most earnest verbs of sorts that Paul can use. I appeal, we appeal, we implore, we beseech, we beg, we plead. If that kind of passion is required of the message, how important must the message be? Eternally important, isn't it? So we need preachers who plead, who deliver the word of reconciliation with appropriate, reverent passion who are indeed lit aflame with love for Jesus Christ, which reminds me of this story of an old Anglican named William Sangster, who is something of, of a powerful preacher in the Church of England in his day in the mid-19th century, he wrote a few different well-known books on preaching. And there's a story told of one day that he was interviewing a, a young man who was pursuing the gospel ministry, setting out his course to declare Jesus Christ in a pulpit a ministry. And he was expressing concern over his shyness, saying to Sangster, I don't know if I can set the river Thames afire in my preaching. Well, Sangster responds to him by saying, Son, I'm not interested in knowing if you can set the river aflame. I am interested, however, in knowing if I take you by the scruff of the neck and drop you into the river Thames if it's going to sizzle. <laughs> so burning is your passion for Jesus Christ. That's the kind of preaching we need. It's the kind of preaching for which we pray. The kind of preaching Paul models and even demands of preachers today as Christ speaks his word of reconciliation through his appointed preachers. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that you bear with us in our failings and weaknesses. We admit that spiritually speaking, we often muffle our ears that we hear not your word. And when we wonder why we have not comfort, we wonder why we have not peace. Open our eyes, open our ears, we pray that you might indeed bring us peace. As we are even told in Ephesians, Christ came and preached peace 
to a church he never visited physically. And it was through the preaching of his word. So give us an appropriate honor for preaching. Give us increasing hunger to hear your word through the heralding of Jesus Christ that we might be conformed to his image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together as we want to respond to Christ's gospel of reconciliation by singing hymn number 247. O sacred head now wounded.